This episode is sponsored by Strategic Education, Inc. At Strategic Education, our mission is to help advance economic mobility for all. Strategic Education institutions, including Strayer and Capella Universities, the Jack Welch Management Institute, Hackbright Academy, and Sophia Learning, innovate and infuse technology into higher education to provide a highly relevant and flexible education experience that results in economic mobility for working adults. Learn more at strategiceducation.com. Hello, I'm Paul Fain, a contributing editor at Inside Higher Ed and the host of this podcast, The Key with IEG. As with the rest of higher ed, 2020 has been an unprecedented and difficult year for college athletics. Programs have wrestled with safety protocols, COVID-19 outbreaks, cancellations of games, and the elimination of team sports in some cases amid serious financial pain. To help get a handle on where things stand and where they're headed, we spoke with Amy Prevet Perko, CEO of the Knight Commission, a nonprofit organization of academic and athletics leaders focused on reform efforts in college athletics. Perko has led the commission since 2005. She spoke about this season so far in big time football, budget crises, revenue distribution, and the commission's top priorities for making changes going forward, including with FBS football. It, this is one of the areas that I think has has shown a pretty harsh spotlight on the governance of FBS football and how disjointed it is. And this is something we've talked about for a long time is the fact that the NCAA does not control FBS football and it does not control the college football playoff that's managed independent of the NCAA governance. Frankly, the majority of college sports fans, they don't understand that. And, and this process, I think, has made that pretty clear in terms of who's really in charge of college football. All right, let's get right to the conversation. Speaking with Amy Perko. Hello, Amy. How are you? Hi, Paul. Thanks. Good to be here. So at Inside Higher Ed, we know that college athletics has been a, a busy beat for a while, but I take it nothing like the last seven months or so. Can you just from your perspective, how hectic has it been? How, how much is on the table right now? Yeah, it's an incredible time for college sports. And I've been in college sports one way or another for more than 30 years. There's never been a time where there are so many issues impacting just the, the normal operation, but also the future. And, and college sports leaders were incredibly busy even before the pandemic. Uh, you had a number of things really coming to a head in terms of uh, state legislation pushing for changes in, in name image likeness and how that is treated, Congress getting involved in, in hearings on, on that question as well. And then certainly the, the pandemic and, and what's happened with that has really put a harsh light on a number of really structural issues, I think, that you know, have, have shown the need for significant change in college sports. So I think June, July, I had Welch Suggs uh, from University of Georgia on here, and you know he he made a bold prediction that it was going to be a weird fall, um, and it it that has panned out. Um, but I have to say, you know, back then in the, the next few weeks, when we saw the positive cases for a lot of the the big time uh, college football programs, I think a lot of folks were thinking this isn't going to happen, and yet you know mm -hmm. here we are, college football is moving along. I mean, not hasn't been easy. Any of that surprise you? Uh, you know, what's your take on, on how they've managed to, to have a season? 
Yeah, sure. Great question. And, and, you know, the Knight Commission took a really close look this summer at, you know, how to reopen college sports. And uh, the commission put forth some guidelines that we believe, you know, remain relevant, quite frankly. And two of the primary principles in those guidelines were that, number one, college presidents should be the primary decision makers about how to re-engage and reopen college sports. And, and doing so, obviously, with the advice of medical and, and public health officials. And, and then secondly, that those, those decisions really should prioritize the health and safety of college athletes, as well as the rest of the university. And I think we've seen that, you know, college presidents have really listened to their medical advisory groups. There have been a number of cancellations when, when they hit a certain threshold that they felt they needed to, you know, take a pause. Uh, I think it also shows, quite frankly, that that athletes really want to compete and and have, you know, from from all the reports, been following, you know, with some exceptions, of course, but have been following the guidelines to do what they can to stay safe and healthy and and put them themselves and their teams in the best best possible chances to compete. So I know that looking forward is difficult these days, even, you know, 24 hours, given all that's going on, but we're getting near the end of the fall, you know, and, and obviously a lot of planning for the spring is going on right now. Can, can you talk about just the level of disruption? And I'm, I'm talking beyond big time sports uh, that you're tracking, the, the sort of planning that's going on out there. I mean, what, what level of concern is there for major disruption? One thing really to key to watch is how the uh, coronavirus pandemic and, and its impact will affect moving forward the college football playoff and the 30 plus bowl games that are still on the schedule. It, this is one of the areas that I think has, has shown a pretty harsh spotlight on the governance of FBS football and how disjointed it is. And this is something we've talked about for a long time is the fact that the NCAA does not control FBS football and it does not control the college football playoff that's managed independent of the NCAA governance. Frankly, the majority of college sports fans, they don't understand that. And, and this process, I think, has made that pretty clear in terms of who's really in charge of college football. So I think that's a, an issue to watch moving forward. You know, and as it relates to that, earlier this year, the Knight Commission sent a letter to President Mark Emmert and NCAA President Mark Emmert and the NCAA board and, and the FBS conference commissioners, really urging them to take a very close look at the bowl game certification requirements, encouraging them to eliminate the guarantees and the subsidies that exist, because at a time when schools are cutting other college sports because of the financial shortfalls, it is our position that allowing those kinds of bowl game subsidies to continue, frankly, is a failure of leadership and, and just shows college football in its postseason may be the sacred cow here. So that's certainly uh, a big issue to watch. And, and then moving forward, clearly the NCAA will need to do, want to do everything possible to have March Madness this year. March Madness generates, you know, a, a billion dollars a year. Uh, about 600 million of that goes back to Division I schools to help them with their athletics department budget. So not having March Madness this past year obviously created 
some stresses on the system, um, but but those schools, obviously, with with how the pandemic has impacted, you know, their schools the, this entire year, those financial stresses are are becoming you know even tougher. So, you know, moving forward, I think how the the NCA is able to handle its championships. Obviously, the NCA moved all of its uh, fall championships into the spring, um, hoping that they could give college athletes, you know, some championship experience in the spring. So seeing how all that plays out is, is the thing to watch. You know, you mentioned uh, the disjointed piece and you know, that obviously is something that's not just athletics. American higher education tends to have the thousand points of flight approach, which can be very good. You know, it's the strength of the system in a lot of ways, but not always ideal in a crisis um, situation. I mean, do, do you feel like, you know, and, and I know uh, athletics was higher ed was such a big story in the coronavirus first few months. You know, in college football and and at basketball even more so. Does this change? You think? Uh, you know, it put real transformation on the table for the way we do college athletics. I mean, how much change do you think this could drive? You know, we we have even before the pandemic started, our commission had launched an examination, a very thorough examination committed itself to a year long uh, study to look at the restructuring, frankly, of division one college sports, because, you know, as I noted earlier, even before the pandemic, there, there were so many issues that our commission concluded that division one really needs an overhaul. The last time division one structure was overhauled in a significant way was in 1973 when divisions, uh, and this is when the NCAA was overhauled, it was put into three different divisions, divisions one, two, and three to align like-minded schools. And that was again, 1973. The, the last kind of attempt at some restructuring was about six years ago when, when the Power Five conferences were given more autonomy within the structure to uh, make some rules through their own independent process, independent of the other Division I schools. And that was really about resources, um, allowing them the opportunity to, to decide ways that they want to spend the resources they have, which are much more significant than, than the other Division I schools. And obviously with the highly commercial FBS college football and in division one basketball, it has created tensions that we've talked about from litigation that continues to push the system and challenge the traditional uh, notions of the amateur college athlete, as well as federal and state legislation trying to, again, change, change the conditions under which college sports operates. So all of those things and more were, were driving our commission to say there needs to be, you know, an overhaul of, of the structure. And so we've been looking at that. And again, I think all of those issues and now the financial shortfalls that are coming as a result of the pandemic, it all shows a system that, that is ripe for change. Um, just uh, last month, we announced the survey results from a a major survey we conducted with Division One campus leaders, presidents, athletic directors, um, and conference commissioners, all those in charge in Division One governance. And the overwhelming um, majority basically said, we need big changes, we need big solutions, not incremental changes uh, in Division One, and now's the time to do it. 
And so there are a number of issues that we got into as it relates to, you know, the types of uh, identifying consensus around problems, looking at the types of solutions uh, that would be supported. But again, the big takeaway was all those leaders felt there needed to be big changes. And, and now is the appropriate time to make those changes. We're going to take a break here. Please stick with us. If you're looking to go even more in depth in IHE's news coverage, check out our special reports. These deep dives feature rich data and reporting, as well as thoughtful, substantive analysis you can trust. Visit InsideHigherEd.com backslash special dash reports to view the topics we've covered and to purchase the report that best supports your area of work or study. You know, I know these are complex issues. Um, you all have a meeting coming up in next month on this work, I believe. Um, can you just give our listeners a, a sense of the flavor of some of the the changes and solutions you'd like to see, just the categories of them, if you can. Yeah, sure. Well, we do have the, the series, the rollout we have, it's transforming the NCA Division One model. We've had, it's a four part series. Our first, uh, first part of the series broke down Division One finances. A lot of people don't realize that Division One makes up 351 schools. The budgets range from 4 million in athletics up to 220 million in athletics. So that in and of itself, you can see the, the, you know, the vast differences among these schools. Now, obviously the division one basketball is the glue that holds that division together because it is the only sport that all 350 schools uh, offer. And, and obviously all of those schools are in that division because of the attraction and the popularity of of the Division I men's basketball tournament, March Madness. Of course, they have to, you know, compete in other sports as well, but certainly that is, is the spotlight, and that drives the NCAA's revenue. So that was the first session uh, on finances. The second was looking at the revenue distribution uh, system. And again, one thing folks don't realize is that the college football playoff is outside the NCAA system, um, and that generates nearly, um, well, over 460 million for the 130 schools in that football bowl subdivision. The NCAA has a separate revenue distribution system and it generates uh, nearly 600 million a year for division one schools. One of the recommendations, frankly, that we already issued relates to revenue distribution. And that, that entire system can be a bit complicated. Uh, we do have information on our website to explain it. And it's interesting that, you know, even a lot of, you know, Division I leaders understand they get the check from the NCAA, but they're not sure really uh, what goes into creating how much they get and why. Uh, so, so we explained that, but one of the core recommendations we made is that the revenue distribution system, in our view, uh, disproportionately rewards uh, schools that sponsor major college football, FBS football. The, re the formula was created in, in 1991, uh, prior to football having its own national championship. One of the key criterion of, of that revenue distribution is that the NCAA must sponsor the sport, the sports championship, in order for that sport to count in the revenue distribution formula. So as an example, a really, really great example we have came across in doing the, the history and research on this, Division One. Uh, well, men's rowing in particular, men's rowing is the oldest college sports in America. And its championship for men's rowing is not 
hosted by the NCAA. It's, it's not considered an NCAA sport. Um, women's rowing is, its championship is hosted by the NCAA, but not men's rowing. Men's rowing has a, again, because its history predates NCAA championships, its championship is hosted by an independent organization. Similar, in fact, to the college football playoff system. It's an independent organization hosting a national championship. And so our view is they should be treated similarly. If men's rowing doesn't count in the formula, college football shouldn't count in the formula. So bottom line, our, we, we had Clifton Larson Allen do an analysis looking at how counting football impacts the formula. And if you took it, uh, college football out of the formula, basically $61 million could be reallocated in, in different ways. And, you know, that's a significant amount uh, that you're looking at annually with uh, some of the ways that you can use incentives in college sports to, to drive the kinds of behaviors you want to see. And that's frankly an area in which the commission in the past has a legacy of influencing change. Just in 2016, uh, the NCAA, it was a long time recommendation of the Knight Commission that this particular revenue distribution, the NCAA's distribution, should have incentives that, that reward graduation rates, that reward the kinds of outcomes we wanna see in college sports. And uh, that was not part of the formula until 2016. Uh, we had recommended it become part of the formula, and in 2016, the NCAA did make a change, and now for the first time, graduation rates and those kinds of outcomes are being rewarded through the NCAA's revenue distribution system. So, you know, over the, over the lifetime of the remaining contract of, of the NCAA's uh, March Madness Media Rights, it will mean that over $1 billion will go back to Division I schools based on those academic graduation outcomes. And again, we think that's um, those are the right kinds of incentives to uh, to have um, rewarding those kinds of outcomes in college sports. So you know that's revenue distribution. I mentioned the survey we've done. That was our third session, looking at all the different areas in which Division One college leaders want to try to address for Division One and the types of solutions. One of the things we um, we surveyed them about our, you know, governance, um, and we found over less than a third are satisfied with the current governance. They also believe there need to be structural changes. We gave them some alternatives, like what about a structure where FBS football, just the sport of FBS football, is separated out into its own entity for running all operations, since, since its national championship is separate and the money from that national championship is separate. What if that, in, you know, that becomes its own entity and, and they run everything related to um, you know, the governance of FBS football instead of the NCAA being involved in, in some of that, but not all of it. We also asked about you know, separating, uh, creating a new division within the NCAA for just the Power Five, those uh, five richest, the schools that belong to those five richest conferences in every sport except basketball. So those are major kind of reorganization changes we, we tested in this survey. You know, moving, we also asked about things like antitrust and antitrust exemption. You know, more than 60% of all Division I leaders favored pursuing an antitrust exemption to limit cost. And, and that was a big concern in terms of the rising cost in athletics. And in fact, that was supported by more than 80% of the respondents from the richest schools, which is interesting. 
And so our final session will be the commission's recommendations and, and we'll be announcing those on, on December 3rd. And, you know, with those recommendations, as well as our earlier re revenue distribution recommendations, we'll continue to do work to, to try to push those forward. We found that, you know, over time we need to be persistent, but again, I think all leaders really want to see, you know, some change. Big change is coming already with changes with name image likeness rules that will create, you know, really a sea change in the types of benefits that college athletes are, are able to earn themselves just based on the use of their name image likeness from external sources. And, and that will be a, a major change in all of college sports moving forward. At Inside Higher Ed, we tend to uh, be skeptical about major change because it's been so hard in, in big time uh, college athletics. But it, I think that is really helpful to get a sense of the, these are some big things on the table. Would you mind just giving us the, the Cliff's Notes version of where things stand with the, the compensation principles on name, image, image, and likeness? Yeah, the name, image, likeness piece, again, it, just to give you a sense of the arc of history, if you will, on this question, it's not something that just popped up on the radar and, and happened within the past year. Name, image, likeness in, in the Knight Commission's history with it, we were actually one of the first groups to to raise questions about emerging technologies like video games that were creating avatars that looked a, a very much like the actual college athletes. And this was very different in our view than um, college athletes themselves playing in a game that's broadcast on TV. And so we raised uh, questions around, you know, in particular video games and, and you know, whether there needed to be changes if, if athletes' likenesses were used for commercial purposes, whether the benefits you know, that, that those athletes could receive should also change. And that was in 2008. You know, a lot happened since then. Uh, Ed O'Bannon filed a lawsuit against the NCAA, primarily around avatars in, in video games. That took a number of years to work its way through the courts. And, you know, ultimately the NCAA decided uh, against licensing video games. So, so those went away, but we still had, you know, pressures about, you know, the use of, of college athletes name, image, likeness. The thing that really changed was, you know, social media and, and the technologies with social media and, you know, allowing college athletes to do the same things that college students can do. Lots of college students earn money becoming influencers on social media. The question is, why shouldn't a college athlete be able to do the same? So college sports um, really was pushed to, to we, we had a white paper. We had Gabe Feldman write a white paper for us back in 2016, looking at, you know, once the O'Bannon case was resolved, we asked the question, you know, what could a new system look like? It, but even then, there wasn't momentum to change this and so the momentum really did become dri driven around state and federal legislation uh, where lawmakers really questioned the fairness of the system and, and said look if the NCAA is not going to change it we're going to change it in our state so that athletes in our state will have the same right as other college students. The, the Moving forward now what's on the table is that the NCAA will, will likely adopt the changes, the proposal it has on the table in January that would become effective in the fall. And 
the bottom line for that is it will allow athletes to earn compensation from external sources, not their institution, for the use of their name, image, likeness in, in doing things like, you know, endorsing a product, becoming a social media influencer. Um, and there's no limit on what they could earn. You know, those, those earnings could be significant for, uh, particularly for high profile athletes. And this opportunity exists not only in Division I, but also in Division Three. And there's some changes um, in terms of the proposals that Division Two and Three have put forward for their athletes, as opposed to Division One. In some ways, the Division One proposal is more restrictive because of the concerns Division One leaders have about the system corrupting the recruiting process. And so uh, you don't have those same kinds of, you know, recruiting pressures and the financial aspect of it in divisions two and three. So one of the major restrictions in division one is that an athlete could not wear the institution's marks and logos in the endorsement. Because again, that would be bringing the institution's value into this and not just the individual athletes. And that's what this is all about, allowing the individual athlete, you know, to monetize their personal name image likeness. So that's where it stands. Where it gets murky is the fact that there are state laws on the books to go into effect. Uh, I believe Florida's is in July, and it is less restrictive than the NCAA proposal. So if we move forward and Florida's law goes into effect, the NCAA's proposal goes into effect, there could be a conflict with those two. And so there still may be, you know, that's why the NCAA wanted some uniformity and, and was pushing for federal legislation that would that would create uniformity across, you know, all state legislation, but that hasn't come about yet. So there's still work to be done to, to ensure we don't have a patchwork of different state laws that are different than the NCAA rules come next fall. You know, when you were talking about the, the social media influencer piece here, I was thinking about the voice of athletes themselves that has been surfaced these days, you know, um, going back to Mizzou's uh, stoppage around Ferguson, but I felt like we saw some of that with the training camps and COVID. And, you know, I wonder, do you, do you see the athletes themselves being more active in, in, in getting their voice out and maybe even protesting where they feel appropriate? Yeah, I think you've, you've seen with social justice issues and across the board, you know, college athletes many times take their, take their cues and learn from what they see with pro athletes. And, and there's certainly been, you know, significant involvement by, by pro athletes. And, and I think there's, you know, that's part of what we've seen as well with just college students generally that, you know, this is a time where college leaders outside of, college sports want to engage young people in you know issues that we all have to pay attention to as citizens in a democracy and and I think you know there's been a lot of great leadership uh, shown by many in terms of you know helping college athletes to understand how to use their voice and and what opportunities they do have so I think you know social social media is here to stay influencers are here to stay so I think the more we can do to to educate all young people in terms of how to use those technologies and those opportunities in responsible ways um, is the way of the future. 
Well, Amy, thanks for taking the time to talk through these very complex, very important issues in, in these interesting times. Great. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Paul. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by Strategic Education, Inc. At Strategic Education, our mission is to help advance economic mobility for all. Strategic education institutions, including Strayer and Capella Universities, the Jack Welch Management Institute, Hackbright Academy, and Sophia Learning, innovate and infuse technology into higher education to provide a highly relevant and flexible education experience that results in economic mobility for working adults. Learn more at strategiceducation.com. That's it for this episode. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next week speaking with President Joseph Castro of Fresno State University, the incoming chancellor of the Cal State system. We'll talk about student success and other issues. I hope you'll join us.